Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome back, Kim. In case anyone missed the previous episode, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Kim Crawley. Um, I am actually, by profession, a cybersecurity researcher and writer. But I get to talk about cybersecurity on a lot of different podcasts and YouTube channels. This is where I talk about stuff that is not cybersecurity related. So, Well, you know what? I know nothing about cybersecurity, so I, I wouldn't even know where to start with you. So I'm glad that you're coming on to talk about something else, uh, even though I should learn. But I read your Substack the other day, obviously going to link it in the show notes, and it hit home for so many obvious reasons. Kim's experience, you got to go and read it for detail. We'll go over it a little bit, but it's just so parallel to mine and so many other stories that we've shared on the podcast or that I've just collected over the years. And sometimes I wonder just how many people are out there that are so dismayed with politics, especially now, especially leftist politics in, re in response to the siege on Gaza in particular has heightened this position where a lot of people just don't know who to vote for. And the title of your Substack was Don't Vote. <laughs> How do you end it? Hold on. Let me, we're going to have to pretend this was seamless after. You have a line at the end and it's... Don't vote, don't vote, don't fucking vote. Riot in the streets instead and give money directly to homeless people. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's not that you're saying don't vote, check out, walk away. There's nothing to do, nothing to see here, folks. Is you imagine a different avenue for change. Yeah, absolutely. What made you write that? What made me write that? I am very active on social media. Obviously... I am a cybersecurity researcher, but that is just my job. That's just the thing that I do to pay my bills. I have a lot of different interests. Like you, I have been very politically active in the past. And so you definitely identified a lot of similarities between your experiences with politics and mine. Although I believe that you've been even more active with the NDP than I have. but. Uh, my, my story, to briefly summarize my story, my relationship with politics, as I mentioned in my Substack blog, I didn't get into this so much in my blog, but I was raised in a very, at least superficially stable, middle-class, white family in Mississauga, and my parents always voted for the conservatives if they voted for anyone. And so I was, I was shielded from a lot of the realities in the world. And also, you know, I thought that capitalism was great when I was a child. I definitely Did you know what capitalism think. was as a child, though? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I guess if you were to ask 15-year-old me, I would have said capitalism is 
is this great free enterprise thing where anyone who wants to produce a product or service can put it out there and if it's good they make money from it and you know the free, let the free market decide yada 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 i believe now now that i know that i can swear on this podcast yeah i believed in that shit when i was before i had adult responsibilities before i went out there in the world and i learned firsthand how horrible it is to be poor and how easy it is for someone to be poor if they don't have financial support from a rich family. So my my mother refused to financially support me once I left home. Uh, so, so financial support from her was conditional on I move in back with her and I live under her rules and all that. And she was very abusive, so that wasn't an option for me. So then I learned that, no, actually, it's pretty easy to become poor if you don't have mommy and daddy paying your bills and mommy and daddy aren't rich. And uh, I think I was on OW for the first time when I was 19. And I, I, I had no choice. And, you know, being an OW, like I was, it, I was 19 in 2003. And I moved to Hamilton on my own. Uh, I first lived in a women's shelter and then I got on OW and I got a place. And it, it's, it, it, it was absolutely horrible to be on OW back then. It's much worse now, I believe. It's much worse to be on OW now than it was in 2003. That's welfare here in Ontario for folks wondering. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the non-disability welfare program. Yeah, Ontario Works is the <laughs> lovely name that they've given it, but you know, folks understand yeah. welfare. I found a room, a private room, so it wasn't like exactly a room in a person's house. It was more like a one-room apartment with a toilet in downtown Hamilton, and the rent there. This was 2003. You must understand that context was $350 a month. And I think OW at the time was 550 something. So I had a little bit, a tiny bit of money left over after paying my rent. Now, forget about Toronto, like you couldn't even rent a room in someone's house in the middle of nowhere, Ontario, for the amount of money that OW gives you. You can't even like share a house with roommates on that money. So it is like beyond impossible to survive on. It was close to impossible to survive on OW back in 2003. Now it's way beyond impossible to survive on OW. And then ODSP, which gives you a little bit more money, you can't survive on that either. It's still like institutionalized poverty. It forces people to remain well below the poverty line. You just can't survive that way. Is that what drove you to the NDP? Because I know a lot of folks on disability specifically that see their only hopes in upping those rates or creating a system that doesn't legislate them into poverty. 100%. My teenage libertarianism evaporated quickly when I learned the realities of the world trying to survive like that, definitely. Um, I didn't politically awaken overnight, but... But that's when the process started, definitely. And uh, and I thought, I thought, you know, I, if I voted for NDP politicians and if I uh, volunteered for their campaigns and whatnot, that could help me get out of poverty. 
And it's kind of ironic because I volunteered for a lot of campaigns for Hamilton area NDPers. And the NDP is stronger in Hamilton than they are in many parts of the country and in the province. And uh, I just, and now in hindsight, I look back, like I'm almost 40 years old now, and I look back and I think, my labor was totally exploited by those political campaigns. I was out there going door to door, handing out flyers and shit, but I'm sure the campaign manager was paid very well, and I'm sure a couple of other people on the campaign were paid very well. So, and you know, it, it was kind of cool that Jack Layton supported, you know, marijuana legalization and whatnot, but otherwise I was, I think I was projecting a lot of values onto the NDP leadership they didn't actually have. Like the the majority of people who support the NDP and are NDP members have these ideals, but the NDP leadership doesn't. The people with power in the NDP don't have those ideals. Maybe they pay lip service to them occasionally, but that's it. So, Layton's a great example of that. I know Jagmeet is a good persona. He polls well and whatnot, but Leighton was something else. And I think until you get really close to politics and, you know, you don't have to fly too close to the sun. It should really just take one convention, <clears throat> to be honest. You become so disillusioned, you know, whether that's staffers, members, really, unless you're absorbed into that tight inner circle and that is what you wanted, <laughs> that real sanitized version of politics, then most of us come floating out uh, in horrible ways. Like burnout is a great way to describe how most people come out of politics. We've heard that from MPPs and folks like us who just kind of wandered in thinking that was by far our best option even a very hopeful one. And then, you know, I'm of the position now that the NDP is a detriment to the left. We don't have to use that language, but it's a detriment to achieving meaningful equality. Absolutely. Actual freedom, right? And I think so many more people have gotten to this point recently, but... You know, Santiago, you've been disillusioned with the NDP for maybe even a little longer than me, right? I think <laughs> <laughs> you probably watched me a little bit go still there and was like, okay, well, this isn't going to end well. Um, <laughs> well but it, 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 It's funny because if anything, you were probably the reason I, I stuck around in the NDP for oh, no, a little bit there. <laughs> no, it's okay. But uh, I mean, for me, there was a certain frustration because I feel like before, like when I was first getting involved in politics, I looked at the NDP and I was like, mm, I don't really see myself represented here. I don't really think that this is the place to, for me to do my fighting. And I got convinced otherwise by a lot of great organizers and activists that I know. And I think that was a little bit frustrating for me because like having gone from the place of like not even believing in this thing to believing in it, to going back to not believing in it was like, oh man, I really like, I wish I had just not believed in it. And what, and it was a really frustrating experience because all of those 
like watching all of those people that I came up with in, in organizing burnout around me, fallout around me, many of them who aren't even involved in anything anymore because they never recovered from that. I, that's such a universal experience and such a frustrating experience. And like, I think that there were moments of hope when I believed, you know, like fighting the system from within is possible and expulsion after expulsion after expulsion that, that makes illusion me scream when you say that i'm sorry yeah got um taken away and actually a, a funny thing my, one of my professors the other day um he had a funny comment about the expulsions he he said something along the lines of if tommy douglas was in the ndp today they would expel him and uh, <laughs> i thought that that was that was a we have some links we can share with them because I, I, there might be people listening who haven't heard our show before, who haven't heard the inside the NDP series. And so, like, we don't have the time here to go through the so many, 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 many reasons, you know, whether it's external policy or internal workings, why that is a toxic environment. I, I want to kind of move along to the discussion of to vote or not to vote. And because there's people there. And there's people that don't want to give up on electoral, <clears throat> that don't want to give up on electoral politics, right? Now that would mean ceding a lot of ground to conservative politicians. And the one thing that the vote is for some people who understand that the NDP is not the solution, but it's a means to prevent the worst case scenario. Voting for the lesser evil, that's a, that's a major pet peeve of mine when people talk about that. Because the lesser evil is evil, and so both options have just been getting, well, both or all three options have been getting increasingly evil. Like, what I wrote in my blog was, regardless of your intentions behind your vote, there is in the electoral process, no such thing actually as voting against someone. You're, the politician gets your vote, they don't think, oh, well, I'm not their favorite candidate, but they hate the other guy more. They think, wow, I, I earned all these votes, these people love me, they're endorsing my stuff. You know, Trust me, that's so how I felt about every vote I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like, there is no such thing as voting against someone. So, but that's, you know, most, I think most of the time when people vote, that's what's in their head is, I'm going to vote for the lesser evil. I'm voting for this candidate because I'm against the other candidate. So actually, I'm voting against the other candidate. Or you get a lot of deranged neoliberals on social media from the United States who are like, uh, if, if, if you don't vote, that's a vote for Trump. If you don't vote for Biden, that's a vote for Trump. And then clever people reply with, okay, well, so I didn't vote for Trump, so that's a vote for Biden, right? <laughs> I didn't vote at all. You know, blaming non-voters is very popular in Ontario as well. There was notorious low voter turnout. There is for most elections now, but... In the, the predicament that we're in now with Doug Ford, most of the commentary, you know, once people get there and go, you know, why do we have him? 
it's not to our electoral system. They don't look to the political party's lack of ability to inspire people or gain trust. It's blaming the, you know, 60-odd percent of people who don't vote. And I'll be honest, in the last two or three elections, I've lost track, but I have not voted. I have not had a candidate that I wanted to send that message to. And there was a part in my political science education where it was explained to me that we can't openly consent to the system that we're in. We're kind of born into it, but we do cede a lot of our rights to a representative, to our government, to make decisions for us. And that casting your ballot was that moment of consenting that and paying your taxes, (laughs) you know, um, but there's punishments for that was your way to consent to that system. And so I, I have moved from places though. Like I started not as a libertarian camp. No, no, no. That is, I, I'm, I'm pretty embarrassed ingest. by that. But I'm pretty that shocked me, but you know, we me. learned, yeah, no, um, that was just all in good fun. But, you know, I came from a place where, you know, democracy was sacred. It's your duty to vote. We voted as a family and yeah, it was driven home. And I believe that for quite a long time. And I think the first time I didn't vote wasn't out of laziness. It was out of disenfranchisement. I, I had nobody that represented it, that represented me anymore. And I think at first I felt bad. I felt guilty. And in fact, like I didn't really talk about it. I didn't boast about it. But now I am so defiant of the system that I I refuse to engage with it. But I know not everybody's there. (laughs) You know, I know a lot of people like Santiago. I wanted to make sure, make sure he was available to talk with us today because I thought he would balance us out at least a little bit because I'm where you are, Kim. But I do have this kernel of understanding for folks that don't want to give up entirely. Now, I don't know if I have as much understanding for people who are actively still engaged with the NDP trying to change it after what has just happened. I think my patience, my patience for them is just gone. But starting a new party, finding candidates that you can vote for, I don't know. But maybe Santiago can talk some reason into like, Santiago, do you vote? What? Do you still vote? Uh, I I have been voting still. Um, I I think for me, where I am at is I've completely given up on electoralism as an avenue for change. But I still kind of I don't know when I cut like when I see a tight race like I still like I I've had a lot of tight races in places where I live recently like in in. Um, Parkdale, hi, uh, no, sorry, not Park. I, that's not where I voted last night. Spadina, Fort York. Um, I ended up, I was not planning on voting, and then it, the Liberals expelled their candidate, and suddenly Norm De Pasquale might win, and I was like, uh, and then I voted. And then when Anna Bailao and Olivia Chow were going at it, I was like, mm, and then I voted. And it, like, that's the thing is that, like, even for us who, like, we're very much on the, we need to organize in the streets, not like um, like my saying is democracy doesn't begin or end at the ballot box. 
it's still like so deeply ingrained that I do find myself still being like, okay, well, I don't believe in this, but I'm not doing anything today. And if you (laughs) reluctantly voted for Olivia Chow, then how do you feel right now? Because she's ready to endorse renaming a stadium after Rob Ford. She's not making the, she's not sharing compassion toward homeless people beyond just lip service. And uh, yeah. No, it's disappointment doesn't begin to describe the way I feel about Olivia Chow right now, like the the absolute frustration. I think what I was saying at the time um, was that I believe that Olivia Chow was somebody that like if we were to pressure her, maybe we can get her to budge on a few things. That was kind of my my logic at the time. Like how Americans would say, vote for Biden, we can push him left. Except Something Biden, along those lines. <laughs> I'm a lot more sympathetic toward people expecting Olivia Chow to be a leftist than Joe Biden. You, you know what's the, the, the real thing for me was I thought if I vote for Olivia Chow, there would be no more encampment evictions. Now, imagine my frustration as I'm standing in the snow uh, when the city is evicting St. Stephen in the Fields encampment the other day. The anger I felt. I was I was throwing things in my apartment when I found out that that was going to happen. I was legitimately like I was screaming. I was more angry than I've been about anything in a very long time because I I just I thought that that part was over. I thought that at a bare minimum they wouldn't go that far as to be evicting encampments at the at the start of winter an encampment in front of a church that wants them there. I thought that that would be something that Olivia Chow wouldn't do. And I was very mistaken about that. And that was like, you know, you know, the whole, there's, there's a meme, like man loses little bit of hope that he didn't know he still had that. That's, that's how I felt. It took me like a couple of decades to get to where I am now, at least. And I mean, I I, the, I attended one NDP convention, which I wrote about in my substack. It was the Ontario NDP Policy Convention in 2004, and I was only 20 at the time, but I had gotten active enough in the uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek Writing Association that I got a delegate position. So I got to attend as a delegate. And at one point, I was even briefly sitting next to Sid Ryan, who is a, a, a well-known labor leader, for anyone who doesn't know listening to this. And I did not want to, I didn't go in there thinking that anything was going to happen other than I was going to attend and vote on some policy and stuff. But a bunch of people in the disability rights group and a bunch of people in the socialist caucus uh, kept encouraging me to run for a, a junior position in the executive. So I ran for it and I made a speech and everything all very spontaneously. And the way I was treated and I felt like I was almost laughed at by the party leadership and at one point I just I ran out of that room in the convention center straight into the washroom and I cried and I cried and I cried. But I was still, that, that, that experience and with the Lewises and their working behind the scenes and stuff like that, that should have been the trigger that made me give up on the NDP. But 
I mean, because it was even, like, it wasn't even a high-ranking position in the executive. Like, it was probably one of the lowest-ranking positions in the executive. But, yeah, if you're not one of their favorite people, it doesn't matter. You're not getting any of those positions. But still, like, I was, in my, in my blog, I wrote about how in 2014, when I was back living in Toronto, I, uh, I was there in the audience when Olivia Chow announced her candidacy for mayor, because she ran for mayor a couple of times before this time when she finally got elected. And I was there and I was rooting for her and she wasn't even talking about any policy. I was, I was poor up until about 2016. And in 2016, 2017 is when my career took off. And interestingly enough, since leaving poverty, I have not, I've just gotten farther and farther left. Like You've got uh, the trend. Yeah, like being, being basically not worrying about how my bills are going to get paid and living well has not de-radicalized me. I, I, in some ways, some of my experiences have radicalized me further, being, you know, superficially middle class. I use that term very carefully because, because that term is used to make people who can pay their bills think that they're in a different class from people who are struggling when we actually have a lot more in common with poor people than we do with rich people. So it's, it's, you lose class consciousness if you take the term middle class seriously. But superficially, yes, I'm middle class, I guess. But, and, but that, that, that experience actually radicalized me further because I thought about all the really shitty service jobs I did in my teens and my 20s and how hard I worked and how extremely little I got paid. And then I think now I write a blog post for a tech company and I get paid like $800 for it. And I think it took me four hours at my keyboard to do something that I got paid $800 for. Whereas when I was struggling, I would have to toil like long hours for a few weeks to make $800. And it, there are maybe a few exceptions here and there, but as a general rule, the easier a job is to do, the higher it's paid. And I have seen that firsthand in my own life. Like the meritocracy is total bullshit. Like, okay, I'm, I'm smart, I can write well, I understand cybersecurity well, but my labor is not more valuable than like a nurse's or like a construction worker's labor or whatnot. It's total fucking bullshit that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not even rich, but I, I get paid a decent amount of money to write a couple of pages where someone has to like kill their body for weeks to make that amount of money. It's just, it's absurd. It makes me think of a, a couple of sociological experiments. Um, one of them, um, they took a few people and uh, got them to play a game of Monopoly, but they gave a couple of the players an advantage, so you know, either more money, they already had some of the property, you know. And they played the game, and obviously in, <laughs> it goes the way it's going to go when someone has an advantage. And then they asked... What they found was interesting was that the people who started the game with an advantage seemed to believe that they deserved to be winning the game. They had 
they, they didn't think that they're only winning because of the advantage. They thought that they were winning because they were playing better. And I think that that is something that applies on on a much grander level outside of just a simple game of Monopoly where people have this, they want to believe the, the meritocracy because they don't want to believe that they got lucky or that they're in a position because of things outside of their control. They need to believe that the reason that they're here and someone else isn't is because of their own decisions because otherwise that lack of control feels painful and you start like having to sympathize with others and realizing how screwed up the whole system is and rewrite your whole worldview which is unacceptable so it's easier to think oh i deserve to be here right yeah so i i deliberately try to fight back against that so and i think i think the vote plays a part in that too where we are looking up to people, we are still then looking to that system. And even though Santiago is learned and went in emotionally cautious with his vote, still felt burned, right? Still thought that vote would help change something that is important to him. And that was naive of him. I'm sorry, like we're just using this as a learning experience. <laughs> no, and that's no, not no. like him. That's that's not like him. But that experience at the ballot, all the hype around the election, it brings that out in people, even the most experienced people. And imagine what that's doing to people who don't truly understand the system. Like, it's unreal how many people still look at Ford and all he's done and the fact that he was reelected and scream, vote harder, vote harder, vote harder. And as though if they could just get more people to vote or strategically vote, then everything would be better. And like, Christ, we've done so many episodes with liberal failures, conservative horrors, NDP betrayals, Green Party. We don't really talk about them, but when we have, and I just read an article of a spurned candidate that used exploited a lot as well, Kim, to describe their experience, you know, celebrated and then scorned, you know, especially if you don't follow all of the instructions carefully. And I think, you know, the audience doesn't so much need convincing that those parties are not good in any way and they're not going to deliver. But I think they still really fear what would happen if we don't vote. But I think it would be an awakening. Like I'm looking to folks then saying, okay, fine. How do we break the cycle then? Right. Federally, it's red, blue, red, blue, back and forth, back and forth. Other provinces, it doesn't seem to matter. We're all, we're, lo we're losing, losing ground every year, every election no matter who wins, right? So then how do we break that cycle if we continue to go to that ballot box, right? Building a new party, let's go there for a second. That is a solution that a lot of people are bringing up. And one, we had this, many of us have had this discussion many, many years, right? I don't know how many people out there have had this discussion. But one of the things that it hinged on was you would need at least a seat. Really, like you could start something completely different something akin to the Black Panthers that we've discussed on the show that maybe doesn't make electoral politics the most important part of what they do. That would be eventual. But the goal is to build your community, show a different model, supports, and all of that. But if you did have a candidate like a Sarah Jama and you did start a party 
that was completely different model, right? Because just repeating it, people, I see people out there choosing new slogans, new names, colors, worrying about the color, but I'm afraid they will follow the exact same structure that they have experienced already. So that's why that project I'm wary of at the moment, but I want to hear from you too, because is that an alternative? Because I agree, there's really no one to vote. I mean, if I lived in Hamilton, I would vote for Sarah Jama. There might be some municipal politicians that I would vote for if I had the option. But given the current situation, I, I think it's honorable to vote for Sarah Jama. I mean, especially considering that she's independent right now and you consider the way that the NDP treated her for like being against a genocide in Gaza, like, which should really wake people the fuck up about the NDP. So I'm very sympathetic toward the idea of like voting for her, and I am certain that she's a good person with good intentions. And I'm sympathetic to the idea of like starting a new party or running as an independent. And I would have, even like a year or two ago, I would have thought that those were the best options. I feel that if you have if you have radical leftist values which you should like radical anti-capitalist values I think the way the system is designed you will be locked out of the political process no matter what I like it's like in our current as long as capitalism exists you need a lot of money to to run for political office and that money has to be coming from someone and somewhere and of course who has the you know that's way that's what's fucked up about capitalism who has the lion's share of the money the people on the side of of evil and concentrating wealth to fewer and fewer people so um so you'd have to overcome there's a definitely a correlation between how much money you have to spend on your campaign and your odds of success at the ballot. And that's incredibly difficult to, to overcome. And then some politicians do somewhat work around the system when it comes to fundraising, like Bernie Sanders in the United States. A lot of his funds came from individual, normal, proletariat, contributing to his campaign. He didn't get as many corporate donations as his competition. But holy shit, was Bernie Sanders, I mean, we can't vote, we could. We were never in a position to vote for him because we're in Canada, but I know we were all watching him very closely. Was he ever a crushing letdown? He's, at times on the campaign trail, he said all the right things. And like, I'm crushed just by seeing people like him and AOC and whatnot attend all these, and NDPers attend all these events maskless. Like that is really hostile and horrific in an airborne pandemic. And I would not feel safe in any environment where people were unmasked and indoors and all that. And disabled people who are more aware of the danger of that are totally cut out too. But yeah, it's extremely hostile in the current situation to, to have all these events indoors and you're not wearing a mask. Incredibly hostile. But anyway, there's that. But there's also, like, 
Bernie Sanders recently is like in support of APAC and being against a ceasefire in Palestine and all that. And I feel the anger of so many good people who are American on social media being like, I, I'm broke, I'm poor, and I went into debt contributing to your campaign and this is what you do. Fuck you, Bernie. And the same with AOC. Like, AOC was crying over the kids in cages, and now she's a part of the Biden administration, and it's like, no, oh, those are just uh, immigration detention facilities. No, it's, it's okay. They gotta be kept somewhere. No big deal. Whereas they're concentration camps. What ICE is doing are concentration camps. Yeah, I, I feel AOC is an interesting example for me. Uh, because I, I remember when, when Justice Democrats became a thing, that was kind of almost the peak of my belief in electoralism. Like, you know, this ragtag group of organizers, David Goliath type, you know, <laughs> defeating the giant of uh, Jim Crowley. Uh, and I believed in that. I was like, okay, so here we have a blueprint. Here we have something that can be replicated. Maybe this can be replicated in the NDP. Maybe uh, it can be replicated by a whole new party. And seeing what has become of pretty much every single person who had anything to do with that has been really telling. And I think one of the things that we had to like when we when we think of like, OK, I can do it different. I could be better is that we have to realize that like being in these environments affects even the best of us. Like this idea that we are so strong to us to not be movable by our environment. Like we're informed so much by our environment. And so if we got into those positions of power and we're facing all of these moral conundrums where, you know, we're being told, hey, sell out all of your values and we will give you the tiniest of crumbs. What does it do to us to sell out our values? So and, and I think that that's particularly important when we talk about you know, the Canadian electoral system, because it's that much worse. It's that much more undemocratic. We don't live in a democracy. So the idea of creating uh, a party to run in a fake democracy that does not have function as anything even resembling a democracy, like we have to ask ourselves, is that really the best thing that for us to do in this moment when the stakes are so high? Is that where we should be putting our energy? Because we're just going to burn out that way. But the one thing that really complicates the question for me of like electoralism, like whether or not, is when I look at Latin America, because there's been electoral victories recently, and those electoral victories have led to real change. And so I look at that and I am like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, they, they, it took decades and different or movements and but I don't know. I don't know if such a thing can be replicated here. I don't know if that's even what we should be trying to do, but it definitely does confuse me a little bit. Um, I don't have the answer for that. You would be a lot more familiar with the political processes in Latin America than I would be. My feeling based on my limited knowledge is there's something about Anglo-American empire that is so rotten to its core that what is possible, you know, in Colombia or Chile, for instance, is just not possible here. Like, yeah, I would I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, we've 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 come to that conclusion, and in South America as well, we see 
losses as well. So the systems that they're using, although have delivered victories, they're the same systems that allow them to be taken away seemingly legally. Sometimes it's obviously not, and that doesn't seem to matter to anybody. But yeah, I think there is a better understanding of how those systems work that's needed. But, you know, there'll be people out there, and Bernie Sanders is a great example, AOC as well, on how we one could overcome the funding. There's been incredible kind of crowdfunding, grassroots level, small donation ability when you inspire people <laughs> with these great orators that promise the world and, and don't deliver. And so that could be surmountable. And you could find people like Sarah Jama who are willing to be censored and fight back and just remain principled, no matter what, you know, even if it does exclude them from the system, sometimes going through that system at least demonstrates its illegitimacy. I think like people are starting to see like, that's not a very democratic process at all, like considering what happened to her. But it's, it's that, that factor of burnout, wasted energy, like, those funds that you could raise for a new party, what else could you actually be doing with those same monies if you're not buying ads and leaflets? Well, you might need leaflets. <laughs> Every revolution needs leaflets. But, <laughs> you know, that is just energy, hope, money that needs to be channeled into the streets, proverbially. I always use that analogy, but there's so many other ways. You know, it's kind of like an ableist way to describe on on how you can participate in you, you said know what revolution I think about, though when you think about if we can overcome the fundraising then that could give a chance to like actual anti-capitalist candidates having power i think about the uk and our political system is based on the british one and i have no idea what it would have been like if jeremy corbyn had become prime minister he might have, you know, I might have learned that he was going to be a total fucking sellout like Bernie Sanders and whatnot. Don't do but that, Kim. he <laughs> said all the right things on the campaign trail, even to a further extent than, than Bernie Sanders or any other, like, supposedly progressive American. Like, he really, really said all the right things. And he never became prime minister. And... And the way, you know, the two main tactics in the UK that they use to keep him away from power is one, the, the media in the UK, as, as you probably know, being a journalism student, Santiago, the media in the UK is even more fucked up than it is in Canada and the US. Like, like the British media is evil beyond any evil anywhere in the world, probably. So the British media kind of conspired to get this idea out that because Jeremy Corbyn supports the rights of Palestinians, he's an anti-Semite. And that, you know, every British Where have you heard that British, before? Yeah. And that those smears didn't work for Bernie Sanders because he's Jewish, but it every British media outlet did that with Jeremy Corbyn. He's an anti-Semite, he's an anti-Semite, Jeremy Corbyn hates Jews. And it became the mainstream belief in the UK that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. 
And then, and then you look at what his own Labour Party did. So his own Labour Party, you know, all the people with power in the UK Labour Party like stuck their knives at Jeremy Corbyn, and they replaced him with this man named Keir Starmer, who is a total neoliberal piece of shit. Yeah, the Labour Party's you gone know, back to what it used to be. <laughs> Yeah, and it's so ironic because the the Labour Party, it's the Labour Party, like this, just like the NDP, the origins were supposed to be, you know, radical labour unions and shit. And it's just so I, you know, in for the for the possibility that Corbyn actually would have been an anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist in office, it seems that like he's the in the English-speaking world, he came the closest to having a lot of power and even then like it'll all get the system will fight you so i think just looking at the corbyn situation i'm sure Jamma has a pure heart and the greatest intentions but if she doesn't change to become totally a sellout like aoc then the system will do the same thing to her either become a sellout or we we spit on you and throw you out like corbyn I think one interesting thing when we talk about people like Sarah Jamma, because all right, the, I know the theme of this is to vote or not to vote, right? But I think uh, an, an equally important question is to run or not to run, you know? And in the case of Sarah Jamma, one thing that like Jess and I were saying at the time was here you have somebody who likely it is more effective when they're in their community fighting in their community then they would be sitting as a backbencher and not being allowed to to really say anything in parliament right and i i think that's the case with so many people so like for many of the people who might be you know listening i think that's almost more of a question is whether or not to put that energy into these parties and then i don't know i just wanted to open the floor maybe to talk about about yeah. that yeah like it's like donating money to the united way is a waste of money you should donate your money directly to a food bank and a soup kitchen for instance and even then there's probably more direct ways of mutual aid that are more ideal but it's even better to hand a hundred dollar bill to a homeless person but to run or not to run i don't know if they're there's like a two week period that goes by where someone does not approach me with some form of that question. And I'm really cautious. I'm not going to be now because that's on like a one-on-one, but I'm normally cautious as to kind of crush all of their hopes and dreams. I just, I'm unsure what folks are looking for sometimes when they're looking to run. It really puzzled me with Sarah Jama. I don't, but that's such a personal decision. But at at the time, all I could think is all of your power as a community organizer will be stolen from you, even if it's temporarily and you thrive within the party. It's still that is not anything you can do. The office, the time allowed does not really allow for that. And that's like outside of the completely toxic environment that you have to then go in. So absolutely never, ever run for a political party that currently exists in Canada. Like, never, ever, ever. Never. 
never. It's it it is a dehumanizing experience. You will feel exploited. You will be hurt. You will ask a lot of the people around you, your family, your friends. You will take their money. You will take their time. And I believe it'll all be for naught, even if you could win, right? And if it's like a platform that you're looking for, I I get that. <laughs> I have a podcast. I understand wanting to be heard. Uh, I ran in a really conservative area, completely knowing victory was not in the cards. But I thought, you know, every four years, four or five people from my area are afforded a platform that is otherwise unheard of. The local newspaper will print quotes from you. You will get to debate on public television. You will get to say socialist ideals to people who will never, ever, ever otherwise hear it. And so... I ran with that only intention for people. I wanted to, people just to hear ideas that they had never heard before. So obviously I didn't take any of the NDP talking points, which is one of the reasons why they never, ever liked me. But, you know, having that brand at the time and that platform that exists during election time was something very unique that didn't exist. I didn't have to do it, but I, I needed somebody, like I was the, the writing president too, so whoever was going to take that spot had to be someone who was going to do that or I wasn't going to do any of the work. I wasn't going to put in any work in any political environment if it wasn't going to be pushing for socialist ideals, period. And once that became clear that that just was never, ever going to happen within that vehicle, I was out, right? Um, but... I, I still understand why people maybe want to run municipally or independently. Like that's still, you got to address what Kim is talking about in the funds that are required to do this. You will be at a disadvantage from the people who do have a party behind them. Municipally, you have a little bit more even ground, but I still fear that you're sending good people into a system, not, not the party, but the, the, the democratic system where their time is just not well spent. Is still not well spent, but you do have that platform. You do still need to speak to people on like all levels. So like only what, like 10% of people listen to podcasts. Some people read newspapers. Some people follow elections religiously. So I don't know. You got to speak to people still at all levels. And if all of us, if all socialists, if all real leftists like walked away from the electoral system altogether, I don't know what it would look like. And so when people are talking politics, when people are trying to see what the full spectrum of Canadian politics are and like, then we're not there at all, uh, that worries me too, even though I know the work in other places is more important, right? Building from the ground up, building people's political understanding when they're not required to vote, just when it's natural and organic, right? And when it's not like this high pressure sales tactic of I'm better because of these reasons, boom, 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 I have five bullet points to sell you on my leaflet or 30 second answer in a debate, right? Like you build these organizations that we talk about every week here on Blueprints. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what is it going to look like if we all abandon shit, like all of us? Yeah, I mean, I, th I definitely agree with you that our energy could be put to better use, like du direct, directly helping people in need and rioting. I, we do need to riot in the streets. Like, people, disabled people who can't do that, that's great. There are comrades. There's a lot that they can do from home. If you can actually literally riot in the streets 
you should be doing that, but we need to organize doing stuff like that. Santiago's um, nodding right. along emphatically. Okay, I, I was yeah. like, if you're not going to chime in, the audience needs to know how down you like, are. With like this. all the all the beautiful pro-Palestine protests that we're seeing now, but I would like that with a mask enforcement. Mm-hmm. That and a, uh, and I would like it with barbecue on the streetcar tracks like the French do. And then eleven, you know, like I need, we need, I think we need to learn from the people who are very good at rioting, and then maybe throw more things. That seems like a better use of funds than those orange election signs that all go in the trash after thirty days, right? It's drums, barbecue. I think we're in end stage capitalism, and it's totally going to collapse into this like really fascist feudalism very soon. So I think no matter what we do inside the system, the politicians who have any power are going to be fascist anyway. Like, as far as I'm concerned, Joe they, Biden is a fascist. And Did you hear our last episode? <laughs> I'm like, they're here. They're already here. Like, fascism is already... Okay, like, a white privilege might not know, but if you're a person of color or disabled or LGBTQI you are more likely to know that fascism is already here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I think, and, and our planet is becoming completely uninhabitable. So we got to, like, take more radical measures, definitely. And, yeah. Well, I it, love, like, your, the meme that you include at the top of your sub stack, and I was kind of going to throw that back at Santiago, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want to pile on at the time. But, you know, how did that, how's that voting working out for you? You, you know, how many generations <laughs> do we have to do I'm this? So smart. It's the Willy Wonka, I'm so smart meme. Yeah. And he says, oh, you voted for the lesser evil. How has evil been working out for you? Voting for evil. No, like yeah, Olivia Chow is... <laughs> has me enraged on a daily basis. I was so kind of relieved. A little part of me was sad when I heard how angry Santiago was, but I know because I, I talked to him, but like every day that enrages me because I did not live in Toronto. Even if I did, I probably would have voted for Chloe Brown, to be honest, or somebody else, because any proximity to NDP is just like eliciting an emotional response for me at this point right like it can be so irrational but there's no fucking way anybody running from that party is going to get my vote at this point especially after gaza like plus autistic people we hold grudges my friends like, i have not watched an nfl game and i don't know how long and i used to watch every sunday and i would bet on pro line like i was a junkie and then i think they 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 threw a flag for some guy praising a lot <clears throat> After a touchdown, when all they do is pray after every other touchdown, I was like, I'm out. This is a racist organization. Like, it was before Kaepernick and everything. And and there's no way I could bring myself to vote for anything that I see. I just can't. Even if I, I understand the consequences are forwards. Because I feel like, although people, when Olivia won or when she was running, had like that you know, we can work with her, but even if we can, it doesn't matter. We can't stop organizing. And for some people, that was true. I'm not, this is not a call out for Desmond Cole. I am, but some people did not. Like, 
People who rallied behind her and got her in power have not held her feet to the fire publicly. And but they would have if it was Anna Bailao doing this. There would be riots outside of her office. It would be unreal, especially if she had led us to believe that she would not do this. You know, if you didn't vote for this. But we don't. We're soft on them. We're soft on them. We still have people in BC who are experiencing like insane wait times and they are still kind of working the NDP campaign trails after what they do to indigenous land defenders, their response to COVID, their response to wildfires, and they're still going out knocking on doors. Why? Why? I can tell you one of my theories about this is this is from my own social media experiences. I, I am a, I spend more time doom scrolling than I spend actually doing my job. So, uh, Good thing you're your own boss. I remember there is a, a, an acclaimed celebrated scientist who used to be active on Twitter and now she's active on Blue Sky. Her name is Katie Mack. And she, po she did a post recently that inferred that people look to her as being a COVID leader as well, even though her profession is she's an astrophysicist. A COVID anyway, leader, not like a mass spreader, but someone who yeah, educates yeah, yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> Most of what she says about COVID on social media is pretty good. Most of it. She once did a post a couple of weeks ago where she inferred that if we had enough HEPA filters or CR boxes, those are ways to filter the air for listeners who don't know, or ventilation, then it would be safe to dine in restaurants indoors. And I know that we should be cleaning our indoor air and we should be improving ventilation. That is extremely important. But it, it's, it doesn't make dining indoors in restaurants safe or sufficiently safe because if someone is actively infectious with COVID and they're in the restaurant table across from you or next to you, the air filters, and I've got lots in my home, or the ventilation does not remove that COVID from the air immediately. The, the best air filtering, HEPA, MERV, 13 filters, ventilation, will hopefully remove COVID from the air after 20 minutes. And people get infected with COVID outside, so the outside has the best possible ventilation, so that means that ventilation alone is, alone is not a solution, but it can be a, a good measure anyway. So anyway, she was inferring that I was correcting her because people look up to her because she's like prominent scientist and lady scientist and oh wow, we adore you, we worship you, we're your fan. And I was like, I'm, I'm autistic too and I think we challenge authority a lot more than, than, than uh, autistic people do. But anyway, it's dangerous to, to leave that assumption that air filtering alone would make indoor dining safe, to leave that unquestioned. So I, I challenged it, and she, she has this very, I'm, I'm rational and I don't get emotional in debates and I'll debate people in a very civilized manner kind of persona. But all kinds of people, supposedly COVID cautious people were like, she's, oh, don't worry about what Kim is saying, Katie. We love you. I think, and I get, I'm not, I'm not famous or anything, but I get, pe there are people who are fans of my books and they message me on social media and they tell me that they read everything that I write and they love my books and stuff. And so I'm not, I'm not even famous. Like I'm someone who sells 
books in the thousands, not in the millions. But even like that's what the internet has done. You can have like uh, only a hundred fans worldwide, but you can be a person with a hundred fans. Whereas that world didn't really exist before the internet. But anyway, my point is, people, if they think that you're, if they look up, they, people will look up to you, and they'll look at your professional position or the work that you've done, and they'll look at you with googly eyes. And I think people do that with people like Olivia Chow. It's the, they're, Olivia Chow is literally an NDP celebrity. Like, she is an icon in the NDP. So even, like, these people are not thinking about her critically. They're like, Olivia Chow, NDP icon, so it doesn't matter what she does, they will rationalize in their head that what she's doing is, is leftist. And I think that happens quite quickly. It is, yeah, but I think that happens quite quickly even without her historical status. I think we're so starved and tired and wanting heroes that the second anybody gets up and says anything remotely brave or who seems like a someone who can just do the work, we we put everything into them emotionally and, and whatnot, and then other people make bigger sacrifices like their work. Never, ever, ever worship anyone, you know, always be a critical thinker, never be blinded by someone's celebrity or their status or the work that they've done. Everyone, myself included, should be subject to constructive criticism and skepticism. Agreed. Um, so as we're coming to the end here, I had a thought in, um, about the whole voting thing that as much as I am working on it constantly, I, I, I crafted a scenario that kind of created an issue for me and I kind of want to maybe share with you guys because I, maybe I, I, I need to like not be buying it, but I was like, okay, um, living in Parkdale right now, a candidate who's run in Parkdale several times now is uh, Paul Taylor, somebody who I quite like as a person, um, you know, through their work with Food Share uh, Toronto. And I was thinking, what do I do if Paul Taylor runs again? Do I vote for Paul Taylor? Do I still like, you know, here's someone who I like. And I was like, you know, I think I probably would. And it's like, is that just, I, I don't know. Is that just the, the, Okay. I wanted to maybe share that and get thoughts. If if your support of him is based on his actions, then I find that sympathetic, definitely. So as long as your support for him is based on his actions and not, oh, I'm such a fan of yours, and you got to like analyze your thoughts and feelings and figure out, do I support you because I'm a fan of yours, or is this objectively based on the things that you've done? That's a tough... Okay, municipally, no problem. No problem. Yeah, sure. Like you said, it takes it you a day. It would be NDP. <laughs> Please don't put your emotional anything into it, though, right? Like, yes, good person. You want to go in there? You want to go in the ring? I think you're going to lose. I think you're going to get hurt. But I will send you in if that's your dream. Like, I'm not going to hold you back. And still, still, though... If it were under the NDP, because this is how I felt about Sarah, right? I don't live in Hamilton, so I, I didn't have to make this choice. But I thought, well, same thing. I would not do this. And you have information where you should know better. So I'm assuming you want to go in and burn it down. You want to go try. 
I'll let you go try. You're a big, big boy, big person. You can make that decision. If you are asking me to let you try to go in there, okay, you're a good person. I will, I will give you that. But I won't think that my ODSP will go up. I'm not on ODSP. I'm just using this as an example, and I, I shouldn't even have added the disclaimer, but let's try that again. <laughs> you know, I don't think there'll be substantial change in any system because you're there. I don't think my material well-being will improve in any way, but I'm on your side. I think you know who the clear enemies are. And I think in a way, Sarah did burn it down a little bit in a way that she couldn't have if she didn't get inside. People fled. People have been given many reasons to flee before. You know, federally, they've betrayed us so many times. We've all got so many stories like Kim, my own, like many, many candidates have told stories like this. Like everyone has been in a riding that has reasons to just walk away from this party. But they did it after this. Right. This was high profile. It was an important issue. It was someone that people believed in. Uh, and so she did kind of, so I'm going to tell myself that is why she went in. (laughs) And so she did do something good, but that was stressful, you know, but yes. So to your question, Santiago, I think there are exceptions where I don't think I'm betraying my position on electoral politics by voting. And I guess in a way I, I'm probably consenting to the system, but if there were people like that, that I thought had good intentions. I don't think I'm losing too much of myself in in that. It's not like buying a soda stream machine or something during a boycott. Also, just just want to throw out a disclaimer, just because you know we don't have a lot of time left. Um, can't go into details, but the green I've been in the Green Party. The Green Party is identical. Every single issue that you have ever run into in the NDP is literally identical in the Green Party, which just makes it that much more frustrating because they're not even getting as many votes. Just wanted to throw that out there to the audience. Um, so after this, I'm not sure if any of us are going to vote. I don't know if any of you are going to vote. It's not really to sway folks either way, but just it's a discussion worth having because a lot of people are there, man. A lot of people. It are there. angers me so much that so many people assume that if you don't vote, it's because you're disinterested or you're lazy or you don't give a fuck. But like. For the most part, I I now believe that voting is it exists to make people think that they have influence over the system when they don't. Like I was so shocked to learn as a child that politicians are supposed to be public servants. They're supposed to be serving us. They're supposed to be our servants. Well, and that's our measure of democracy in any country is we send observers to their elections and if their elections seem clean they're good they are good any policy they pass under there it's good they're legitimate they can have an ambassador in our country that's it right that is a democracy making sure you count the votes clearly and fairly done done so yeah all these people living under the illusion that because they get to go to that box that there is a democracy underneath them and they think, and that's where that's where their political actions end. It ends is at the ballot box, right? So, that's a very common theme with liberals. And we 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 know that when we say liberal, we were referring to right wing people who who think that that they're super progressive because they don't hate gay people as much. Yeah, the size of my left wing at this point is pretty small. I'm pretty. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like I'm not like a purist, but the, like the criteria is just it's a little tight at the moment because there's so many neoliberals that I would say it's, it's more that the the Overton window has shifted so far right that what's left that what we consider left wing that's also within the Overton window is a sliver, a sliver, and I don't even know what that sliver is anymore. <laughs> like, but yeah, no. and even that sliver is not on the ballot box. So, <laughs> no, no, exactly not. Um, any closing thoughts, Kim? Uh, yeah, I guess I mean it's, it's, I can I feel sympathetic toward people who vote for independent candidates like Sarah Jama is independent now, who have progressive idea. I, I should retire that word progressive because that word has been tainted. Who have anti-imperialist ideals, but I think the system will stop her from enacting her ideals and her values but it's good that she got to shake things up and make people realize that the NDP was a facade so that that's good and I definitely see that point but yeah it angers me that the 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 way that non-voters get trashed as being disinterested and lazy and yeah it, it's it's totally fucked up for me it's just like vote or don't vote but be prepared to dismantle the system either way and riot. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.